Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you break free from self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and disempowering patterns, and break through to create the thriving, successful business you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. I interview entrepreneurs who've overcome amazing challenges to create success on their terms and experts who share insight and information that can help you get past your blocks and move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. The show is available in both video and audio formats on a variety of platforms, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, in the Google Play Store, on YouTube, and on my website at winnieanderson.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll share the show with others in your community, and I hope you'll decide to join my community. You can become a fan of the show on my site at winnieanderson.com slash fans. When you do, you'll get episodes delivered right to your inbox along with information, tips, and resources to help you consistently move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity so you can position and pre-sell yourself as the unique solution provider you are and ultimately profit from your expertise and build a business in alignment with your faith, beliefs, and values. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, I know you want to maximize every minute of every day, and that means multitasking when you can, including mealtimes. I read morning prayer as I eat breakfast, and I watch videos while I eat lunch. Those videos can range from faith-centered messages by Melvin Pillay, success-centered messages from Jack Canfield, how-to messages from Pam Hendrickson or Moz, and others, and often include the fascinating messages from TED Talks. You know, maybe somewhere in the back of your mind, you thought you'd love to deliver one. I'll bet you have a big message to share that the world needs to hear. And you love the idea of having your message go viral, like Brene Brown's or Mel Robbins or any of the other top TED presenters. Now, but how do you do that? Right? Well, one way is to start with a TEDx talk. TED talks, of course, are those powerful presentations that are 18 minutes or less and that educate, inform, and inspire. TEDx talks are local conferences that are format, formatted similarly to the big TED conference. So how do you get to present at one? Well, that's part of what today's guest is going to share with us. Robert James Collier is the founder of Entrepreneurs Dinner. These are exclusive networking experiences that are built around the idea that breaking bread with someone is a powerful relationship-building experience like few other things in our lives. Rob has built his business entirely by word of mouth and often spread through social media. He's going to talk a little bit about his business and how he developed the idea, but he's also going to talk about his experience in applying for, being selected to deliver, and then ultimately presenting a TEDx talk at TEDx Buffalo. So listen in as Rob explains the common need that we've experienced too that inspired him to host his first first dinner and what led him to believe that this could actually become a business. What makes your average networking dinner so bad and the key element that can elevate it to something powerful? The concept of psychological intimacy and how it helps us build strong teams strong networks, and can lead to strong client relationships as well. 
Now, as always, be sure to listen all the way to the end where I'll share your cocktail exercise and your action step for this episode. All right, so welcome, Robert. I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Winnie. Sure. Can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? What exactly is it that you do with Entrepreneur's Dinner, right? If I probably got that wrong. So why don't, you, why don't you tell us about that? What is it that you do with these dinners, and what is this dinner thing? Yeah, so Entrepreneur's Dinner um, is an intimate, curated, invite-only event for entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs that allows everybody to share what their business is, what their biggest challenge or hurdle in business is, and then most importantly, how they can help others. And so we host these dinners at uh, these beautiful private residences. We have uh, private chefs that serve delicious four-course meals. Uh, we have bartenders that serve drinks and videographers and photographers that capture the entire thing. Um, so it's just this way for people to develop intimate connections with other entrepreneurs that uh, can truly support them, but also help to grow their business. How do you think that's different from so many association dinners and things like that? What, what would drive somebody to want to be a part of this kind of dinner as opposed to, you know, these, these other things that are, are out there? Yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, the big difference between us and a lot of people that are out there currently is that there is a traditional style of networking that a lot of people are just kind of tired of. Um, you know, yeah. people go to networking events and they feel like it's really, I don't know, just kind of sleazy or salesy at times where you yeah. go to speak up with somebody and it's just, they're just, yup, 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 yup. They're just talking the entire time. They're not listening to you and they give you this business card because it just feels like they're trying to sell you. And so what we did with Entrepreneur's Dinner is we flipped that on its head. And instead of having people that come and try to sell you, instead, you just come here to give first. You know, you give first and foremost. Uh, it's that focus on giving. But along with that, uh, you know, people who break bread together and, and dine and eat together, there's just a connection that's developed naturally as a result of that. So the people that come to our dinners find that they develop these genuine relationships with each other, not based upon sales, sometimes not even based upon business. It's just based upon genuine interactions. And then from that, a whole host of good things uh, have come. Actually, just today, uh, I, I just finished a meeting and a friend of mine told me, uh, he's an entrepreneur's dinner attendee, he told me that he just closed and negotiated a, uh, an equity stake in a multi-million dollar company. Um, so he's now a millionaire, and he said he thanked Entrepreneur's Dinner for where he's at because without Entrepreneur's Dinner, he wouldn't have got there. That's incredible. That's crazy. That wow. Amazing. That happened that just is, an hour ago. That's <laughs> so, so amazing. That really is amazing. But, you know, I have to agree with you about this magic of something happening when you break bread, when you have a meal with people, when, you know, I'm a former corporate person and where I worked we had a 24-hour day cafeteria I worked at a casino hotel in Atlantic City in the height of casino gaming mm -hmm. and my department ate this wasn't very efficient but my department ate lunch together every day and deep conversations happened at lunch. Not that we didn't have a great time and there were plenty of times when I used to have people tell me that they wanted to apply to work in our department because we looked like we had so much fun at lunch. And, and that's part of it too, right? It's the relationships that get built. 
it's the stories that get told that you otherwise would not hear. And there really was, you know, at, at the departmental level, deals that were made. Hey, I, I need somebody on this project. Why don't you get involved? Hey, this, de- this department told me they need somebody on a project. Why don't you do that? And again, that stuff never would have happened had you not been at lunch that day. That's right. That's right. You, so, you, go ahead. I was going to say you hit the nail on the head as well in terms of like uh, productivity and business. I mean, your right. what you guys did is uh, basically the pride, uh, the paradigm and the model for why some businesses are so successful. That intimacy of you guys sitting together every single day during lunch, you develop those genuine connections yeah. and you care about each other more than just inside business it becomes an actual um, almost family. And Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you know, I want to think of it as we've, and we've, we've heard of these people who, who organize these team building experiences, right? Which is so nauseating. You're going to go have a specific experience to, don't you do that every day? And, and really that's what it was. It was a daily team building experience and you really did get to know someone on a very, very deep level. And it, it then became opening and welcoming for other people who saw us, obviously. So how did you come up with this as an, uh, to, to build a business around? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I can tell you it wasn't intentional. Um, <laughs> it was definitely not intentional. Essentially what happened is my dad had a double lung transplant. Yeah, so he is a transplant survivor uh, of an autoimmune disease called scleroderma. And okay, I know. Yes, I know what that is, yes. Okay, yeah, so his, uh, he had systemic, so both of his lungs were um, useless at the point, uh, at the time. And so he had to have his chest cracked open. He had an emergency surgery in order to save his life. Uh, fortunately, they, they were able to do so. Actually, the doctors who opened up his chest said that he would have been dead within 48 hours had he not had surgery that day. And we thought we were going to lose him about four or five times. I mean, different situations going on where he wasn't going to get on the transplant list. And then once he, he was going to get on the transplant list, he wasn't going to get there soon enough that he made it to the top of the transplant list. And then when he actually was ready for the transplant, they said, you would have been dead within 48 hours despite all that had this not happened today. So just a miracle, right? Yeah. Um, but he had a double lung transplant. So I moved from where I was currently working at, which was in Detroit, Michigan, down to Dallas. And I moved to my parents' house to help out around the house. Um, during that time, having moved back to Dallas, I knew that I had a bunch of friends doing really cool things in the startup space, but they didn't know each other. And so I wanted to get them together And me looking at how traditional networking is done. There's just, like I said, it's, it's salesy, it's sleazy. It's just, it's not. It's not organic. It's not genuine. It's not intimate. And so what I wanted to do was flip that on its head, put a little bit of my personality into it, and allow people to develop genuine relationships. So I invited people into my parents' home, um, and instead of you know, you know, having it at a venue or hotel, I invited people into my parents' home because that's super personable. Homes, um, just that, that family atmosphere opens up an entire array of connections that otherwise would be open. Instead of having one person speak to another, hi, my name is Rob, and this is what I do, and then going into each and every single person, I instead allowed everybody to get in one big circle. And so instead of a one-to-one connection, it's a one-to-many, so that when you share what your business is, 
what your biggest challenge or hurdle in business is, and then how you can help others, everybody is there, everybody there is listening to you. And so it allows everybody to be heard at the same time. Um, in addition to that, I want people to sit down and eat together, you know, because like we, we said, there's something, there's a magic there that happens when you're sitting and eating with one another. So we did all these things. We had private chefs come in and, and make these like nice kimchi like inspired. I don't remember what they made, but it was really good. And there's two things that happened that let me know that this would be a business. One was that I looked around uh, my parents' table and everybody was in a big circle and it looked exactly like how our family looks when we're at Thanksgiving. Everybody was in a circle together, people who had never met each other before until that night. I was the only person that, that was a centerpiece that people knew. They were all sitting together shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, like we were a family. And that let me know. I even said something. I was like, my mom would be so proud of us right now, uh, the fact that we're all together. So that let me know that some really intimate connections and bonds were made. The second thing was that uh, one of our attendees, her name is Laura Dalpini, she said, so when's the next one? You know, at the end of it. Um, <laughs> okay. I was like, I wasn't thinking about a next one, but uh, we'll put something together. And so that's how it became a business. Okay. I put together another one. And, um, you know, within two years, we've had uh, over eight dinners. That's awesome. So do you, you don't just do Dallas, I don't think. I think I've seen you on Facebook where you've had a dinner at other locations. So can you talk about that? Do you travel around and do these things? So it's interesting. We've, we've done our dinners in Dallas, but we actually have people from around the country who fly into Dallas to attend. That's wild. Yes. Um, so we've had people from Michigan, from D.C., from California, from Minnesota. And we had uh, one person come from out of the country to attend our last dinner, uh, which we hosted on a yacht here in, in Dallas, Texas. So we do host them in Dallas right now. Um, we have every intention on moving to different cities across the country and then eventually expanding internationally as well if, okay. if um, the scene sets, is set for that. Well, Dallas is a nice central location, though. I mean, really, it's like halfway across the country, right? It's got a, a big airport, too. You've got Love Field yeah. is there, right? Actually, three, I guess. There's Houston Hobby, Love, and well, I guess Houston's far away from Dallas, right? I'm geographically impaired like hours. everybody else is. A couple <laughs> of hours. So you have da you have Dallas Fort Worth, right? The DWF, yep. I think it is. And then is is Love Field near near there somewhere? Yes. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. Field is near and then DFW being the, the huge international airport. Right. We do have two big airports here. So you're yeah. right. I mean it's a nice central location and there's a lot of things that are happening in Dallas that makes it a nice destination for people to come especially those who've never been oh. they, they end up loving yeah. it yeah and love field of course is the home of southwest that's why i mentioned right. it so yeah that that alone i think makes as long as i can get there on southwest i'll go anywhere as, yep. as, as long as i know that because they they fly out of buffalo i i'm up here uh, north of niagara falls new york and thankfully the buffalo airport is an awesome airport and it's not far away and and i can fly on southwest so i'm a happy girl yeah. so uh, this wasn't like you said this was a surprise you had obviously you had a job you had a life in another state you were going along but i know even that wasn't all a complete bed of roses for you, right? So do you want to talk a little bit about how you actually got 
to to this point because there there was some rough stuff going on i remember when we were talking originally yeah you know and like anybody i've i've had my ups and downs um through my personal journey but um you know it, it really started with uh, college i went to a school called the university of texas at tyler here in texas and i majored in finance with a minor in political science but i realized that i was very interested in starting my own thing and so i started a company called interview me live we aimed at conducting live online interviews between students and employers for postgraduate positions so if you can imagine something like a skype and a, mm -hmm. a linkedin um, those two combined that's what we aimed at doing and we received some really great feedback. I mean, we co-hosted a career fair with the University of Texas. We made some great partnerships, um, but I decided not to do that. Um, I decided that I wanted to go to law school instead. And so I studied for the LSAT. While I was studying for the LSAT, I didn't want to have a job, so I actually created one. I wrote uh, papers for college students. I actually made a website called writeyourpaper.com, um, and I wrote papers for college students uh, you know, which is, <laughs> I don't know if it's illegal, it's immoral. Uh, but yeah, so I did that uh, for a period of time as well. And um, so the, the trend kind of continued with me starting and doing some things. Um, I ended up putting writeyourpaper.com to the side uh, because that's not how I wanted to make money. Um, I also decided that I didn't want to go to law school because a lot of my friends were graduating with debt, many of whom were graduating with massive amounts of debt. Um, but because of Interview Me Live, the opportunity in Detroit came up where the CEO who worked there um, informally advised me on Interview Me Live, and he found out I was no longer going to law school. And so what he did is he invited me to come work for a startup. Um, he flew me to Detroit, Michigan. He put me in a hotel for five months. He gave me a company car, and he allowed me to work on a project of my choosing. So um, all these things kind of led to one another, but there were definitely periods of depression. You know, when I was in Detroit, being living in Texas, uh, I'm used to being around the sun. And so I had uh, seven months of depression. I'm, yeah, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with it, with being yep. in Buffalo. So, you know, I had uh, bouts of depression, seasonal affective disorder, which were uh, really challenging. I mentioned my, my dad um, having gone through his double lung transplant um, when I was living up in Detroit, not knowing how things were going and just being stressed, honestly. Um, yeah. You know, you know, I think that's an interesting point that you make that um, it sounds exciting to move across country and have an exciting job and, you know, create a whole new life. And it is. It's wonderful. I've, I've done it myself. I lived in New Orleans for four months on a temporary assignment for the casino hotel I worked at, and it was exciting. It was also depressing mm. because you're 1,200 miles away from home. I, I when I lived in New Orleans at the time it was the murder capital of the country women were literally snatched from parking lots while I was there so it wasn't like you felt safe to be honest right. sorry about this for anybody who's who's from New Orleans but that's the truth and so I felt like you know you can't even go to the mall and wander around aimlessly because it's a little it's scary so yeah. yeah, and then you have nothing to do but work, right? And so, yeah, I can appreciate that I, I was depressed too. Yeah. And it's not a, a great, great place to be in, but I, that I'm glad that you were able to 
turn it around and make it something that was, you know, is fabulous for you. So how do you then decide that it's time for another dinner? I mean, do you have them scheduled regularly, like monthly or their X number? How do you manage to work that? Sure. So what I do is I have quarterly dinners. I'm once roughly every three months. The reason why I do it quarterly is because I want it to be uh, infrequent enough that it doesn't happen on a too regular basis so that it's still uh, nice and exciting, Um, but not so uh, infrequent that, you know, people don't anticipate it, don't want to come and return. So I I do it quarterly. um, And yeah, I schedule them out. months in advance for okay. when the days are going to be. So in 2018, I'll have the entire year planned out for Dallas. Okay. Um, we'll look to expand to different cities. So we'll begin planning out the dates for those cities as well. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. So, excuse me. So how do you market this kind of venture? And then if it's an invitation only, how does somebody, how does somebody get in? Absolutely. The interesting thing is that the marketing for this has been done all organically and not even through multiple channels, but only through my personal Facebook page. Okay, that's great. That's surprising. I don't know many businesses that are able to fill up dinners and get people from around the country um, just through a Facebook page, not Instagram, not Pinterest, not LinkedIn, just my personal Facebook profile. So what I do is I let people know when the next dinner is. Um, typically what I do is I have a video from our past dinner, mm-hmm. um, just the one that just completed, and I share the date for the new dinner. I let people know uh, what Entrepreneur's Dinner is about, which is you know intimacy, um, it's uh, selectivity, kind of that premium, and, and just really trying to help each other, that gift first nature. And what happens is people uh, just attract, are, are attracted to that idea. Um, yeah. Initially, we had people who were friends of mine in my personal network on Facebook, and then we just got a lot of word-of-mouth referrals, uh, which is naturally the best kind of uh, referrals and leads, right. but people who have been to our dinners who have, like, like my friend who I just mentioned, um, which is crazy you know, that he's now a millionaire as a result of, of that, um, but people who have you know, had lesser but just as meaningful things happen to them, people who have quit their jobs that they hated and decided to join a startup or people who have uh, decided to quit, you know, as a teacher and decided to go into real estate. I mean, down the list, they have this experience at Entrepreneur's Dinner, uh, which is unlike any other event they've been to. And then they share it. They just naturally, when anything good happens to you, you just want to give it out. And so they share it with other people. And uh, we just have a bunch of people that are referred as a result of that. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, and again, we're not knocking any model or any group here, but I think we've all gone to these networking e- events, right? Whether they're dinners, they're cocktail parties, um, lunches, right? The Chamber of Commerce and different associations that have these kinds of events. And it can really be sort of a crapshoot with whoever shows up and then who you manage to meet and sit with. And sometimes it's a great connection. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are so many people there that you just can't have a great conversation with as many as you would like to, you know? So I, I have 
I'll be honest, I don't go to these events anymore. I don't either. Because they, I've just, exactly what you talk about. One, you walk in the door and it's like vampires attack yeah. you, <laughs> yeah. right? They, they, they just jump on you. I've actually, I went to one <laughs> where this guy just, I was talking to a few people I knew and this guy walked up, handed out his business card and walked away. And, how, and what am I supposed to do with this? Right. right. I don't know you. You just hand me some random piece of card, you know, like what? Yeah. Do you even think I really want this now? I mean, come on. So I, I just, then I would have those people who, yes, it was just like they just wanted to sell me by dessert. Yeah. So I felt pressured. I, I, I don't know who you are or what you do. There are very few connections that I made that resulted in long-term relationships, referral partnerships, and just quality people who I could call and ask a question of because, yeah, it's just, I think, the way they're orchestrated, the, the expectation that, well, this must be what you're supposed to do. So yeah. I love that you're just saying, no, it isn't what, you're, what you have to do. You can, you can do whatever works, and here's a different way and a, maybe a better investment of your money since it is such a concentrated experience with other people who know you're here to meet and make connections but they're not looking to make a deal by dessert by the time they walk out the parking lot. You hit the nail on the head in so many different ways. Um, So an interesting stat, 88% of business cards that are received are thrown away as soon as a person gets home. So that means nine out of 10 times uh, roughly, if you receive or hand out a business card, it's getting thrown away as soon as a person gets home. It's devastatingly ineffective. And it's even worse with the guy who just hands you one and just leaves without even trying to make a connection. Like, just an idiotic move. Yeah. And so you're right. I mean, just, I stopped going to those networking events. The only networking events, uh, and I didn't call it networking, but the only events that I attend is Entrepreneur's Dinner at this point. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm eating my own dog food, you know, because you can go to an event and it's curated. You know that there's going to be good people there. You know that there's people that are, are there that can compliment you. You know that you're not going to be sold by dessert. Um, it's just an entirely different experience. And, and yeah, I, I appreciate that because on the opposite side, knowing that, sure, this is how networking is done, but it doesn't have to be done that way. It shouldn't be done that way. Um, that's not even how human psycho- psychology works. You know, we want to develop relationships first and foremost. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, okay, so you have been growing this virally, we'll call it, right, through social media, through Facebook specifically, and in the show notes, we'll include all Robert's contact information, his social media links, and and all of that good stuff so you can connect with him as well, but I know that recently, and I'm so bummed that I was out of town when this happened, yeah. you just did a TEDx talk, right, yeah. and you did it here in, in, in Buffalo, Right, 30 minutes away from me. So, yeah, unfortunately, I was out of town because I would have loved to have met you live and and heard you speak. So talk a little bit about what you spoke about and then how the heck did you get it? Yeah. So what I spoke about is actually a lot of what you and I are speaking about now. Okay. Um, So 
in an age where we're more connected than ever, people actually report feeling more disconnected. Yes. Yes. Um, roughly 72% of people report feeling lonely or isolated, even when surrounded by friends and family. Technology contributes to that. Right. Um, a number of things do. But the irony is that these businesses that have innovated such great technology, the fact that we can communicate via Zoom and haven't met before, um, but when you go to work, you, you don't feel like you can be yourself. Um, you know, you don't feel like you can just, you, you feel like you have to put a work face on, you know, and, and nobody wants that. Right. Um, so what I spoke about was how intimacy not only helps to close that gap, but it also helps you to stand out and become the obvious choice in a world full of me toos. And so I use several examples, examples from Apple, example from Google. Real quick, because you mentioned it, Google did a study um, where they studied um, over 180 Google teams. They completed over 200 interviews, and they researched uh, the studies on the best-performing teams for the last half century. So Google spent millions of dollars on this project called Project Aristotle, and the purpose of it was to figure out how to build the perfect team. Now, they spent all this money, and then even after, after spending that money, I mean, looking at everything from like how often people eat together, how uh, the best traits of managers, they still couldn't figure it out. That was until they started considering some intangibles. And what they found is that um, psychological safety is the most critical factor to high-performing teams. Love it. And so what, what is psychological safety for those who don't know? Um, it's basically being characterized by feeling comfortable, um, feeling respected, and having a connection with the people that you work with. Yeah. The same thing that you do when you sit down every single day and have lunch with your coworkers, that creates psychological safety, and that is actually what creates the best-performing teams. So boiling it back, it's that level of intimacy. It's being able to see into one another and being able to to be seen. Um, the way I define intimacy is not by, you know, our traditional standard uh, models of intimacy, closeness, or familiarity, but rather by in, to, me, see. Seeing into me and also being seen, That's a union great. between the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that intimacy, both in business and in personal life, is, is huge. That is, I'm so sorry now I didn't say it because that mm-hmm. is so stinking brilliant. And as I'm listening to you, I'm amening you the whole time when, you know, people will, sometimes you'll be in a conversation, people want to know, oh, what's the most fun job you ever had? What was the best job you ever had? Who was the best boss? Tell you exactly where I worked, why, and, and how it was powerful. And that was really it, psychological intimacy. So my, when I was, I'd gone back to college, I had an associate, so I decided I needed to get my bachelor's, went back to college, was paying myself, uh, paying you know, my, myself to my, my own way through. Obviously, I needed a job. And retail, of course, one of the easiest jobs to work around your, your college schedule, right, stereotypical. It was a new company moving into town this is going to make me sound like a dinosaur but i'm going to tell the story because it's it's meaningful i promise um it was it was back in the 80s at the height of the whole video club thing i worked for the nation's largest privately owned chain of video clubs 
company called Errol's, E-R-O-L apostrophe S. Okay. They, first of all, their ad was startling because they they put right in there must love movies right don't know fakers must yep. love movies the interview process included it wasn't a quiz it was a conversation about the kind of movies that you really liked and it was fine that you had a specialty and you only watched this however it better fit in with the whole we better not have another specialist in that in that area right so you talked about your favorite movies why they were your favorite movies they paid a dollar an hour more than anybody else that's a lot of money when you're talking about basically a minimum wage job so that automatically made them a magnet for you know they could pick who was really good but then it was and who doesn't want to stand around and watch movies all day come on right but it was also the environment that manager created, it was okay to say, you know, I can't work this shift or I'd like to stay late, but I really just can't. He did not make you feel bad. You weren't going to be punished. You could be honest. And he encouraged you to be out on the floor talking to the patrons. So you were never understaffed. There was lots of people there to give service to the customers but the real linchpin was there was a moment when we had a problem we one of the drawers was missing money right obviously this is a crisis and there was no panic we we knew the money had to be here right so there was trust it wasn't like up against the wall i know somebody took it we literally went through bags of trash to find somehow we figured out that there must be a credit slip that was missing. Found it. This was oh my God. You had credit slips. We sat on the floor for two hours after closing, talking to each other, pulling the trash out. And after that, you could, there was just no breaking the bond that happened among all of us to the point that there, you know, times when, business is off I got somebody's got to go off the clock right somebody's got to go home no one would leave that's crazy no one would leave so at some point you know his name was was Greg Greg would have to say somebody's got to go so first in first out you got to go you've got to punch out the people would punch out and not leave oh my gosh they would punch out they would come back in and they would talk to the customers. They would oh straighten it. Now, come on. How many places can you say that? And it was all around this, I feel tremendous trust. I'm well-respected. Yes, I work a, a, an, a dollar more than minimum wage job, but I'm treated with dignity. Mm-hmm. What's not to love? It sounds like he was he was doing things Incredible. then that we're still trying to figure out now. That's yes. That's very 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 true and he actually told me, you know, at some point you got to hire somebody, right? The, the the business gets busy, somebody does leave um and he said I'm afraid because this group is so great i'm afraid how do you bring in somebody new what if i what if i screw this up you know i've done this so well and this little region of stores became an icon of 
wow. great performing stores with tremendous loyalty and just, you know, won every sales prize there was because, because that's what it was like. Best job ever. Best company ever. And, and that's and a, a long story, but I think it illustrates this concept of psychological safety. 100%. The fact that you remembered everything in so much detail, so, cl- so clear, uh, right. the people that experience, that's it. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the model for what companies right now are spending millions of dollars trying to create. You had that at that position. And it's that, that psychological safety, that intimacy, that... Yeah that ability to be seen and to see into others and just to connect on a, a real level. Yeah. Um, and the irony is that companies now who are trying to be more productive, they're getting rid of that because they're trying to replace it with productivity, not understanding they're crippling themselves. They're right. doing the opposite of what they're trying to, uh, the outcomes that they're trying to have happen. Yeah. Eating lunch together was probably from a, a, a manpower standpoint, the biggest mistake literally every manager in the division was at lunch and most of the departments were there with them so here was almost the entire management division you know of a division having mm-hmm. lunch together now on the plus side every internal customer knew well we're in the cafeteria just come get us if you need us and meetings would happen right there but from a a, a team standpoint it created an incredibly powerful experience. And, and I'll, I'll give you another crazy example. For people who were going, this really isn't that important. So I had to hire some people myself. And I hired, I actually, I, I'd gotten promoted and inherited a department from somebody. So, so she had hired this person. Mm-hmm. Maybe like six weeks before uh, she decided to transfer and I took the job. So I'm talking to this person who never came to lunch, ever. And, you know, you can't force somebody to eat lunch with you. I said, you know, you you might want to just rethink this because I know you feel like you don't fit in. One reason why you may feel that way is because you don't have lunch with all of us. And it's a big experiential bonding kind of thing you see in our scene People then think, you know, like I said, I want her to work on my project, and you get all these cross-department experiences. She was just, no, I'm not, I don't have to eat lunch with you. That's my time. All right, don't, but then don't feel bad when the VP wants somebody to work on a project, and he says, all right, I'll take you. You were at lunch, and you weren't. So, yeah, I think people really do minimize that and think that in this day and age of technology, I don't have to do that. They do, and it's it's unfortunate because I understand I understand the um, the intent behind it because they want to increase productivity. You know, they want to make. But again, they're they're doing the, the complete opposite. And studies right. like that at Google, studies like uh, at other other companies show that you know it's it's a team that does uh, it's a team sometimes that is is getting off topic in meetings, um, right. talk about random things and. Just, being drawn all over the place, that's actually the better performing team than the one full of top rock stars, the best engineer, the best programmer, and they're constantly on mission. Those aren't the best performing teams. So, and and not only, and so that's true in the workplace, but it's also true of businesses as well. So the businesses that prioritize intimacy, I'll give you another example. 
Um, Apple. Apple is a company that everybody knows about, but what most people don't know about is Mike Marcula, who was their number three employee. Mike Marcula was responsible for helping uh, hire the first CEO. He helped to manage the company, and he made an investment of $250,000 into the company for uh, 30% equity stake. Wow. That stake became worth over $200 million at the time of their IPO. But that wasn't his most important contribution. His most important contribution was the Apple marketing philosophy that he wrote right when they were being incorporated. The very first point that he wrote on that, Apple will have an intimate connection with our customers' needs. He said, we will understand our customers' needs better than anybody else in the entire uh, in the business. And so Steve Jobs became obsessed with that. That's how he marketed Apple for the next 30 years to the point that if you look at studies on brands that have the highest level of intimacy, Apple is still number one. Yeah. Despite all the crap they have going on with phones and, and all that stuff, they're actually ranked number one most intimate, but also they're ranked the number one company that people feel that they can't live without. Wow. When you have a company that people feel like they can't live without, right. plus they can charge more money, they can charge a premium, yep. is it any wonder why that, with the ability to charge more, that they become the most profitable company in the entire yeah. world? That's fascinating, and, and I'm so glad you mentioned that um, because, funny, I was just thinking about how can I make myself irreplaceable to those I serve? How can I deliver such an incredible experience for those I serve that they think of me that way? So that kind of, of thing isn't just for the big guys. It's for any of us who has a business product or service. I could go on about this for hours, but listeners will be happy to hear I won't. Let's get back to TEDx. So, yeah. so big, fabulous thing. So many people have doing a TEDx on their, you know, their bucket list professionally. How the heck did you do it? How did you get it? Yeah, well, I, I ran randomly just, you know, through connections and social media, I ran into one of uh, the people who participated in organizing the event. Um, didn't know that they were participating in that. We just connected, just natural conversation, just both being authentic, um, interested in what they were doing and just the, the different interests that they had. And then later found out that they were part of uh, TEDx Buffalo. And so I asked, I said, you know, do you think that that's something I should, I should be a part of? And they said, absolutely. You know, entrepreneur's dinner, you can talk about this, you can talk about that. And so what I did was I sent in a video pitching um, the idea that business cards are dead. Okay. So what you do with TEDx is you send in a pitch video, and it's just a two-minute video about the idea that you want to speak about. Okay. And so I had the topic, business cards are dead, the idea that uh, business cards uh, serve as this microcosm of everything that's wrong with networking. I, I gave the statistic earlier about how 88% of business cards are thrown away as soon as you get home. So there are these just devastatingly ineffective things, and we can do away with them. And instead, we should replace some more genuine, intimate connections and relationships. Um, so I pitched the I sent the pitch video in. They Their team reviews it, and based upon that initial review, they say, yep, you're in, or nope, you're out. Okay. So they said, uh, I think... 
probably a hundred or maybe a couple hundred people submitted pitch videos in and they whittled that down to eight speakers. So I was one of the eight speakers that they chose. That's incredible. You should be so proud. That's fabulous. I'm Thank sure your you. mom is so proud of you. She is, yeah. <laughs> That's she, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So is so it's not like you can just go to a website and apply. You did you need to find somebody? Is that it? So that's a good question. No, you can do both. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, so you can either know somebody who's involved okay. in a TEDx and they can help that way. But either way, whether you know somebody or not, you still have to go through the process. Okay. Because there's a committee okay. that's involved. And so what you do is if you're interested in speaking at a TEDx event, um, you find out where the event is. It can be in your city. It can be in a different city. It can be in a different country. Mm -hmm. um, you apply on their website. So they're going to have a period, an application period where you can apply. Okay. Um, you go in, you click the application, they'll ask you a few questions about yourself, your interests, et cetera, and then you'll likely submit a pitch video. And again, that's about a two-minute pitch video talking about the idea that you have. You don't have to have it fleshed out. You okay. don't have to have everything all figured out. It's just your idea. Okay. Send that to them. Usually, you can put it up on YouTube and send them a link. Once you have all that done, you complete the application, then you just sit back and wait and see if they're interested in having you speak for their event. Okay, that's fantastic. Now, sometimes some of these, these TEDx events are themed, right? So obviously, you're not going to send in your idea about business cards or dead when they're doing an event all about business cards. I mean, right. you know, you're going you're gonna to find something, you're going to pick a themed event and make sure that your topic fits that or you apply some other location then, right? So you do have to do some level of research and thinking about, am I, am I really a good fit for this particular event? That's absolutely right. You have the theme that you should um, have a topic that's going to contribute to that. You know, one of the biggest things is that you should think about a TEDx as being a gift. It's this gift that you're giving out to the world. So how is it that you can present an idea that's going to help others and in line with that theme? Right. The other thing is, um, and I actually just forgot what I was just going to say. Oh, well. It'll pop it'll back, back in your head. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't worry about it. So uh, that's, but that, I think that's great insight then is to, if you think that this is, a good thing for you and you have a great idea, right? Because that's where it has to start is that you have a great compelling idea that maybe is a zig when everybody else is zagging, right? Because it, it strikes me that something provocative is not, you know, shocking for the sake of shocking, but having a, a contrarian kind of topic mm -hmm. maybe would make you be somebody of interest to them. Would you say that's true? I would say that's absolutely true. Okay. Um, having something that's provocative, having something where the idea, the time for the idea has come. Um, so to give an example, I think the, the topic on intimacy, I mean, we'll talk about that, why, why I submitted one topic and I went with a different one. But uh, the topic on intimacy, that's a, that's a topic where the idea has come. Um, we're in an age where we need more of that. I mean, you have kids walking around just on their phones all day and they don't look up and, and talk to anybody. So those two things, you know, if it's provocative, it's, if it's different, um, if it's something that can really help other people and it's not, it's not rah, rah, it's not, you're not trying to give a motivational speak. This is far different from a motivational speak. This is 
hardcore, do I have a story, do I have an idea, do I have a topic that can be a gift to other people, and then also if it's a, a, a topic that the idea has come. Yeah, and there is a book out about, there are probably a couple at this point, about how to give it TED Talk, one by the person who, I think, started TED. So we'll include links to that as well to give you some uh, a leg up if you decide to put this on your bucket list and you want to really look into this. So how did you then decide on this particular topic? And um, is it because it was this perfect fit with where you want to go professionally? Or did you make any shift because you wanted to, you know, you, you thought it would make you more competitive. How did you how did you do that focusing on the topic? Yeah, it's a great question. And some people may have made the decision to go something that's more in line with their career or their professional aspirations. I actually tried to do something that I thought would be a better gift to people. I thought what would give that's the most great. value to people. Um, and so actually what happened is I had a friend, uh, his name is Ian Lubers, um, he and I speak on a regular basis, and he said, you know, I like the business cards idea. I think it can be a good talk, but it sounds like you're talking about something that's more subtle and more uniform to the actual thing that you want to speak on. It's not just business cards. And I, so what I did is I went around uh, for a walk, and I just talked to myself out loud, and I just talked and tried to talk through the idea and said, what is it that this business cards are dead topic represents? What is it that I'm actually trying to say? Because it's not just about business cards. Are there applications to the broader world? And that's when it hit about intimacy. Um, the idea that business cards are dead is because it's this uh, inanimate object which symbolizes just so much of what's wrong with networking. Yeah, there's no real connection. You, you get right. a piece of paper with your name on it. What you know? Then I'm I'm only going to throw in a bowl that's just going to take <laughs> up space and collect dust until I go. Why do I have these? I don't know who any of <laughs> these people are. And then I throw them all away all at one time because I feel too bad throw the, throwing them out as soon as I walk in the house, which is probably okay. what I should do from an efficiency <laughs> standpoint. So yeah, I think it really does show it's an attempt to make a connection. You're giving yeah. somebody something that will remind them of you, but it's so blah. Most of them are dreadful, just absolutely horrible because we, we spend $5 for them at right. Vistaprint rather than having, rather than spend $20 at Vistaprint. You know, I mean, we, it, we just go on the cheesy end of things, which doesn't represent us very well anyway. Right. So yeah, I think it is. It was a great little symptom there of this larger issue that then ties into perfectly the whole dinner thing is right. all about you. And I think that, you know, I think really that's, where I've seen business going more the last few years. So for the, the first, when I first got online, it was all about building a huge list, right? You want to get a massive list. And now there's more of a recognition to, what do you need a million people for? Right, really, what, what do you need a million people for? You're, can you serve them all? Probably not. So you don't need a million people. You need people who are passionate about whatever it is that you're trying to help them with, and then you need to help them. That's right. So it's, I think we're coming back full circle to, it's about having, yes, you want to have a, a big enough list, but you want to have this deep relationship, back to intimacy again, this deep relationship that creates this connection that 
they love you, they're buying from you, you're helping them, and then you are truly remarkable, right? As yeah. Seth, Seth Godin would say, you're, you're truly remarkable. People will remark about you and tell others about you. That's right. That's it. Which is obviously what they must be doing about your dinners since you're able to rely completely on Facebook. So one last thing about the, the TED thing. Sure. Because that alone I could go on for days about. So how did you, once you got it, you know, oh my gosh, Yahoo, then you, obviously you're not in this area, so you had to fly in at your own expense, right? So let's make sure we know that. The fly right. in at your own expense, put yourself up. This is a tremendous opportunity, though. Mm -hmm. So how did you prepare for it? Because I watch these TED Talks, and most of the ones I see, people are, like, effortless. So how did you prep? So this is going to be one of the most inter interesting parts of this uh, interview that we're doing. And I want people who are not public speakers. I want people who are fearful of public speaking. I want people who have an interest in speaking, but maybe not a background in it to listen very closely to this. Everybody's different, especially in how they prepare. Now, what happened, and I share this on Facebook, um, what happened is I was stressed. Can I curse? <laughs> I, was, I was stressed the F out. You know, I was stressed out because there was there were people who were on their third and fourth drafts when I haven't completed my first. And I'm working with the TEDx team and okay. they're like, hey, you know, where are you at with your draft? Have you decided on your topic? Listen, I changed my topic multiple times between the business cards are dead and the intimacy talk. I changed it two weeks before my talk. Oh, I never, never had a first draft written, never once. But this is why I want people to listen because I was stressed out, but I wasn't listening to myself. What I learned is that I can't rush my process for anyone. My process is my process for a reason. It's gotten me to where I'm at. It's helped me to have the, the level of success that I do and not saying that my level of success is greater or less than anybody else's, but the place that I'm at is because of the process that I follow for myself. And I know myself better than anybody else knows you. Uh, so I was trying or I was trying to work in a way that was beneficial to them. And I just had to say, you know, I got to talk about the topic that's most meaningful to me. Right. And that's going to be this intimacy topic. That's going to be the, the one that I'm going to feel best about. And I can't do, you know, the word for word thing. I'm not going to be able to do a written draft. That's not how I speak. That's not how I talk. So that was huge for me. And, and mind you, this happened maybe a week, uh, I'd say two, max three weeks before the date of the event. You have some people that know their speech down pat months prior. People who in June, when this was being done in October, had their speech done. They already knew what they were doing. So, of course, this put their TEDx team at, at kind of, you know, on red alert. Uh, but it worked out for me. So my preparation, by the way, in that period of time, I was watching YouTube videos. Not YouTube videos of TED Talks. I'm talking just random basketball clips, <laughs> interviews. I just decompressed. I was like, look, this stuff is stressing me out too much. I need to go back to Rob and who I know. So that's sort of what got me back onto a place where I could begin prepping the way I wanted to. And so my prep then began was a lot of research on uh, the topic, looking at 
different businesses and how they employed intimacy, um, how they were developed these intimate connections. And I, I lucked up upon some great examples with Apple, with Google. Um, I saw Beyonce as being an example of intimacy. So all three of those are used in my talk. I use my business in my talk. And I just compiled a huge document of research. And from that document of mounds of research, I put that over into a point bullet point list. I bullet pointed almost everything that I was going to say, uh, mostly just the kind of the larger topics, but I did a point by point by point everything that I was going to say throughout that speech. Um, and that's what I used in order to, to deliver the actual speech. Okay, and um, that's great. And the one thing I really want to amplify in there is this issue of listening to yourself and tuning into that that's not permission to slough it off and, and, and wing it, you know, walk in that the next day with, uh, I'll just make it up as I go along. And, but it's also a permission then to not make yourself overly nuts as well. And yeah, I think that some of the most powerful presentations are just those that the person knows that topic so, so intimately and they are emotionally invested in it in some way. So passion is not the only thing that produces a great talk, but it, it certainly is, is important. So that's great. Any, any last-minute additional pieces of advice you would give somebody who wants to, to you know, put a TED Talk on their bucket list? Yeah. For, for those who would like to cross that off of your bucket list, um, number one, Identify the topic or idea that you think is going to be the most value to other people. And like when he said, being able to know a topic intimately, being you don't have to be an expert on it. Um, I'm not an expert on the topic that I gave. I was more of an excavator. I saw something in the world, and now I'm the mouthpiece for it. Now I'm going to be the one saying, hey, this is what happened. But I'm no, by no means an expert but you're curious or passionate enough that you can share that idea with other people, I mean, you think it's going to contribute value, that's huge. Um, the other thing that I would say is um, enjoy the process. I mean, really enjoy it. Like, it's not often that you'll have an opportunity to deliver uh, a talk to potentially hundreds, thousands, thousands, and millions of people. Um, TEDx provides a great opportunity by spreading those ideas and, and those thoughts. But enjoy the process. Don't become overworked by it. Don't become stressed by it. Winnie made a great point in that you do want to come prepared because this is not a motivational speech. This isn't something you wing. You come prepared. But when you're there, when you're prepared, you've done the prep work. Now just go out and enjoy it. Just enjoy the process. Right. Enjoy speaking. Enjoy connecting with people. Those are the two biggest things I would say. Right. Awesome. Great information. Rob, I could go on for hours with you. This has just been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking this time out and for joining me today. So let everybody know what's the best way for them to connect with you and to keep posted about the next dinner and when that's going to happen and how they get how they can get on the inside and get invited. Absolutely. So if you're interested in attending Entrepreneur's Dinner, I'd love to have you. Uh, you can visit entrepreneursdinner.com backslash apply. And that gives you the application in order to apply to attend our next dinner events. Uh, I know Winnie's going to have those in the show notes. We have great ones. We just had a dinner on a yacht. 
Uh, we're going to do a mystery speakeasy experience next. So we're doing some really cool things, um, and I'd love to have you there. If you want to connect with me, uh, you can find me on Facebook at Robert James Collier. Just search Robert James Collier. Um, I'm on Instagram, Robert James Collier as well, and I'd love to connect with you at either of those places. All right, fantastic. Thanks again, Rob. I'm looking forward to, to sharing your TED Talk with everybody as well. Thanks, Winnie. All right, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. I think Rob is really fascinating. And to be honest, I've put doing a TEDx talk on my intention list. Now, if you like this episode, I hope you'll share it with your connections. Please leave a great review for it on the platform where you've consumed it. And be sure to subscribe either on that specific platform like iTunes or iHeartRadio, Google Play, or you can subscribe to the video version on YouTube. But when you subscribe at my website at winnieanderson.com slash fans, you'll receive episodes emailed right to your inbox each week along with information, tips, and resources to help you profit from your expertise by positioning and pre-selling yourself as the unique, trusted advisor you are. All right, so let's talk about the big takeaways for this episode. First of all, is to tune into that moment when a big idea just hits you. It might start out as a little feeling inside, or it might be a whisper in your ear, or a nagging feeling that you have. Sometimes it's as obvious as someone telling you that they want more of what you've just provided. But the biggest takeaway for me was how Rob just went for the opportunity of doing a TEDx talk when it presented himself. But the biggest takeaway for me was how Rob just went for, for it for the opportunity of doing a TEDx talk when that opportunity presented itself. He didn't think, well, who am I to do something like that? Or, I'm not good enough as a speaker. No, he got the details, sent in his pitch, and if it got rejected, okay. But he had confidence in his message, and that gave him the courage to then take the action to apply. All right, so your cocktail exercise, otherwise known as reflection exercise. It's to give some thought to what you would do if you didn't censor yourself. And by that I mean, you know, if you didn't say, oh, no, I shouldn't do that. Would you call up some guru and ask them to be interviewed for a book you're working on or a product you're creating or a show you host? Would you talk to a potential JV partner about an idea you have that would work for both of you? This is the sort of thing I think is valuable to make notes of and journal about. You know, what inspirations have you had that you just haven't taken action on? And what would you do if you could get past that? So your action step is to take action. Do it. Call the person. Send the email. Find the TEDx event that's right for you and send a pitch. Start the book. Submit the proposal. Take the action. And instead of wondering, what if it doesn't work? Well, you know, what if they say no? Picture them, whoever them is, as saying yes. Visualize every moment of the conversation that you have with them. Every moment of them reading your email or the proposal that you send, imagine what they'd say, including the tough questions that they'd ask. But always imagine yourself answering them effortlessly. 
And when that little voice inside your head says, oh, no, kick them out. Let him or her know that you don't need them anymore. And if you'd like to get support as you move yourself and your business forward, if you'd like to be part of a small group of like-minded entrepreneurs who understand what it's like to feel isolated, to hate selling, and to dislike marketing, and you'd like support as you keep moving forward one micro step after another, then visit my website at winnieanderson.com slash action and check out the Action Takers group. Learn how this small group can help you and can help you support you as you work to achieve your goals. I'll keep you posted on when the next group opens up for enrollment and how you can apply to join. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and remember, you deserve all the success you dream of.